For those outside the Golden State, California conjures up images of glitz and glam. Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Silicon Valley. Yet the state has the highest poverty rate in the nation. And the chasm between the ultra-rich and the poverty-stricken continues to widen. How is it that a state with ongoing economic growth, pockets of vast wealth, and one of the nation's largest social safety nets can still leave so many of its residents behind? It was to answer this question that the Cato Institute launched the Project on Poverty and Inequality in California in the spring of 2019. Drawing on the Cato Institute's decades of expertise in fighting poverty, we've examined ways in which California can help people get out of poverty and fully participate in the state's economy. We've also tapped into the knowledge of Californians on the front lines of these issues. As the result of our research, we learned that too many California laws are regressive, trapping people in poverty and making it harder for them to climb the economic ladder. These policies involve criminal justice, education, housing, the existing welfare system, and regressive regulation. As a result, we are offering a series of recommendations about how California can do better. Well, thank you all very much for coming and braving both COVID protocols and what I understand is a monsoon outside. So I appreciate your being here today. As you heard, I'm Michael Tanner. I'm a senior fellow with the Cato Institute and also the director of Cato's Project on Poverty and Inequality in California. Uh, we're here today because we are releasing our final report of the project. I can tell you that yesterday this report was hand-delivered to every member of the California legislature. And today it was released both electronically and it's also being mailed uh, to every county supervisor, every mayor, every city councilor, every city manager, and every county welfare director in the state. So we hope for a wide distribution of this report. Uh, I also want to make sure I uh, let folks know that uh, we are under a mask protocol here in uh, Sacramento. So unless you're actually eating or drinking or something, uh, I've been asked to tell you to keep your, uh, to keep your masks on. Uh, I also want to make a note of the folks who are watching this online. In fact, most folks are watching this online through either the Cato event platform, uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Uh, and if you're on Twitter, uh, follow with the hashtag CatoCalifornia, uh, YouTube, of course. So we have people coming in from a variety of platforms. Uh, and uh, when you ask questions, we're going to take questions uh, from, from the audience here, both uh, the live audience and also from the uh, audience online. Uh, you can use your platform uh, to ask questions. Uh, we'll have them relayed here. And if you're using Twitter, you should ask your questions using that hashtag of Cato California. So with that said, let's take a look at some of what we came up with in terms of the project uh, on poverty and inequality and what is going on in the Golden State. Uh, as you heard mentioned, California has the nation's highest poverty rate once you, uh, if you use the alternative poverty measure, which takes into account both benefits and cost of living. Uh, find it amazing that a state like California with so much wealth, so much going on in your state, 
and yet you can have a poverty rate that's higher than places like Louisiana or Mississippi that are generally associated with poverty. Uh, clearly something isn't, uh, isn't coming through. And we also look at the fact that uh, for a state that really has, has a progressive tax system, has extensive social welfare benefits, uh, has an ethos of uh, egalitarianism, yet there's still a great deal of inequality in your state. This uh, chart shows the, the Gini coefficient, which is generally uh, used to measure uh, inequality. And you can see there are only four states in the country that have higher levels of inequality than does California. So for all the efforts to relieve inequality in the state, again, clearly things are not uh, following through in terms of results. We also know that uh, poverty is not evenly distributed uh, and that, uh, that communities of color are particularly hard hit by poverty. Uh, if you look at the poverty rates uh, in this state for Latinos and African Americans, you see they're much higher than, uh, than for whites and for even, uh, the even Asians are surprisingly high. Uh, generally considered sort of the model minority who's supposed to not have poverty, they still have a very high poverty rate. So we see a, sort of an uneven distribution of, of poverty in this state. This is what drove us uh, to launch the Cato Project on Poverty and Inequality. Uh, we spent the last two and a half years studying the issue in your state, and we made two important decisions early on. One was that we were not going to get into the usual battles over funding levels. It wasn't going to be a case of, well, we should increase this program by 1%, and we should add these little requirements on this other program, and maybe this program should go down by a half percent. We didn't want to get into those usual battles there. We found that those were kind of counterproductive. Rather, we wanted to talk about the big issues that could enact a fundamental transformation of the way California looked at poverty and the way California fought poverty. And the second was, even though Cato's been working on these issues for years, we did not want to simply parachute in from Washington and say, we figured it all out, we have all the answers, uh, the way so many wa folks from Washington do. Instead, we wanted to tap in to the expertise of Californians. So uh, I've made uh, at least a couple of dozen trips out here. I've visited all, every part of your state. Uh, my staff's been out here as well. We've had round tables, town halls, meetings with elected officials, uh, with anti-poverty activists, with people who are serving the poor. And in particularly important, we've met with people experiencing poverty themselves, including people experiencing homelessness. We've talked to them about the problems that they're facing and tried to get firsthand as much information as we can. Putting this all together, we've come up with 24 recommendations uh, for things that we think California should do uh, differently. And you know, I should, these, these uh, deal with housing and homelessness, as you heard, with education in the workforce, with criminal justice issues, with welfare reform or the existing social safety net and changes therein and what we're calling in a broad sense economic inclusion or the ena enabling low-income people in marginalized communities to have a fuller participation in California's economic growth. Now I should say right at the top of this, I, I certainly recognize that not everyone is going to agree with every one of our 24 proposals. 
Uh, I would sort of be shocked if everyone uh, did. Uh, as you'll see here today, we have a broad array of speakers. We have liberals and conservatives and libertarians, Democrats, Republicans. We have uh, cut across the ideological and political spectrums because we think these are issues and we think, frankly, our solutions cut across these issues, across the ideological spectrum. Uh, say, people aren't going to agree with us necessarily. We certainly aren't going to necessarily agree with everyone who speaks today. But radical change requires an open and honest debate. And we hope that this starts that conversation, that debate today. So let's get right to it. One of the things we found quickly out as I, we came out to California was the importance of housing and homeless, the homeless crisis tied to it as an issue out here for poverty. We knew uh, from our studies in other states that housing was, a, it was an issue for the low-income communities, but we had no idea just how bad it could be until we got to California and found that everybody at every level that we talked to discussed the importance uh, of this issue. The median home price in California now tops $500,000, and the median rent for a two-bedroom apartment is $2,300, which is 60% above the national median. Uh, in some cities like San Francisco and LA, average monthly rents can exceed $3,000 for a two-bedroom apartment. Uh, you can imagine what that means if you're a low-income family, a mother with a couple of kids, how impossible that is to, to afford. Uh, and this is tied very much to the epidemic of homelessness. Uh, there's over 130,000 ho uh, people experiencing homelessness in California, 28,000 of those in the Bay Area, 68,000 in Los Angeles County. But even you can take a city like uh, San Diego and you find 8,000 homeless people in that city. Clearly, you have an ongoing crisis. And much of this, so much of this is tied to the simple laws of supply and demand. There's a, there you're simply not building enough housing to keep up with the need. And I know that people look at the homeless problem and they see people on the street, and so many of the people who are living on the street have problems with substance abuse and mental health issues. And you don't necessarily tie that directly to homelessness or to housing costs. But we also found that many, in fact, a majority of people who are homeless, and maybe they're not as visible as the people on the, you see on the street every day, but more than half of the homeless population in California simply fell to the street because they couldn't find affordable housing. If you have something, uh, uh, something that interrupts your rent, uh, you have a health issue or family emergency or you lose your job, which so many people have done recently, uh, you simply have no place to fall. And we actually talked to people on the street, people who were teachers in California, people who were working for the state government. Uh, we talked to emergency room nurse uh, who were living out of their cars uh, on the streets of California. Uh, as you can see here, uh, just looking at the cost of rent here in California compared to the national average, the number of people who are rent burdened, that is, are spending more than 40% or more than 30% of their income on rent, is much higher in California. Uh, if you're a low-income individual, uh, the burden on you of rent is, is enormous. 
just wanted to this again ties it to sort of the housing rates uh, building here. You can see that in, where once California built more houses than on average in the United States, uh, that's really fallen in recent years. And now the estimates, uh, the McKinsey report estimates, with three and a half million units short of what is necessary uh, to do for the housing in, in your state. And the homeless population here is much higher. By some estimates, roughly half of all the unhoused homeless in the country uh, are in California. Uh, so clearly that's a problem. So what do we recommend? I'm not going to, as we go through all this, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time uh, trying to tie this to every possible recommendation or go through every one. But we, th we came up with eight recommendations in terms of dealing with housing and homelessness. Number one, we think you, the state needs to end exclusionary zoning practices at every level, at the state, county, uh, county and municipal level. Now, we think the state has actually made some progress in this regard, passing SB 9 and 10 actually was, were good steps in the right direction, but we think unless other exclusionary zoning practices, uh, including uh, minimum lot sizes, uh, setback, minimum setback requirements, parking requirements, uh, all of these other things are removed, uh, you're not going to be able to take full advantage of that, and you also need to be able to move beyond simply building duplexes to building uh, denser multi-story, uh, multi-unit housing as well. Uh, as part of that, we'd like to see more uh, counties and more municipalities move to a ministerial or a by-right uh, approval process once you've, uh, I mean, basically there shouldn't have to be a secondary review for uh, the NIMBYs or not in my backyard groups to be able to come in and fight every uh, new housing construction unit. Um, sort of NIMBYism is, you know, NIMBY is kind of the state motto, I thought, uh, should maybe be on the flag uh, out here. And it sort of cuts across every political category we see. You know, it's, it's often linked to, to conservatives. We also saw Robert Reich in Berkeley fighting against a new apartment complex in his neighborhood. Uh, so we see this sort of cutting across all ideological lines. We want to see a smoother uh, approval process. Uh, restructure the California Environmental Quality Act to CEQA. Uh, this was you know, one that everybody we talked to, regardless of their political affiliation, told us that CEQA needs to be fixed. That it, is, it blocks housing is too often used simply as a tool, a pressure instrument uh, in order to extract uh, certain payments from, uh, from contractors. Uh, we know that uh, environmental, uh, there's aesthetic environmentalism uh, is being often used. The fact that you can sue on any project anywhere in the state, regardless of where you're from, to block it. Uh, my, my, this is the best story that I heard on this uh, since I, when I was coming out here was in San Francisco where they're building a multi-story building uh, next to a Russian spa. And it was explained that the Russians in the spa liked to sunbathe nude on the roof of their, of their building. And this new building would have cast a shadow uh, across the roof at exactly the hours that they most liked to sunbathe. So they demanded a payment uh, in exchange for not suing under CEQA because this blocked uh, their, uh, their sunbathing. There was also another famous shadow, I believe it was in Berkeley, where it fell on a community garden and so you couldn't build that building and so on. These are constantly, uh, constantly refrained from these regulations that need to be reformed. Uh, we think uh, building fees should be standardized and capped. 
understand that many municipalities face a problem with the fact that uh, tax revenue uh, has been capped with Proposition 13, and they've been basically shifted to building fees to deal with the cost of new housing. <coughs> Excuse me. And I understand that housing is basically a, you know, has the costs that are associated for municipalities. <coughs> yeah, police, fire, sewage, water, all those sort of costs that go into it that have to be met. But often these fees are simply a, another revenue mechanism that have very little to do with the actual cost of the new housing. Uh, we think that they need to be standardized and that they should be capped. Uh, there was legislation to cap it, I believe, at 12%. Uh, and we think that that would be a good move in the right direction. Uh, we want to deal with the power of LAFCOs, the local area formation commissions. Uh, basically, you should also be able to build on the, fr on the fringes of municipalities. Expanding these municipalities in order to be able to build new housing is often limited because LAFCOs are basically required to consider only three things. That is preserving green space, preserving agricultural land, and limiting your urban sprawl. We want to see housing uh, the construction of new housing to be something that they take into an unequal basis. Uh, in terms of dealing with homelessness, uh, we think we should not be using the police to deal with homelessness. Uh, understand that you know in downtown in certain areas there's problems with, with tense cities and so on, but one of the things we found out early on in this was that the police move in, clear these areas, uh, destroy people's tents, destroy their identification, destroy their medication, uh, lock them up for two or three days over the weekend and then let them out on Monday and say, okay, you're on your own again. And how are they possibly better off if, you, if you've done this? The police are not a homeless agency uh, and they do not do a good job on that. On the other hand, you're going to have to deal with somehow to deal with folks on the street and we think California needs to strengthen its conservatorship laws in terms of moving people into treatment and into housing when it's available. Uh, obviously, you gotta protect civil liberties. You don't have to be a Britney Spears fan to recognize how conservatorships can be abused, but we do think that there needs to be something done in, in terms of, of strengthening the, the state's conservatorship laws in that regard. And then finally, uh, many uh, municipalities have adopted CEQA exemptions for homeless shelters and other projects, but not all. And, and we think just the way it blocks construction of new housing, it can too often block the, uh, the, the uh, building of uh, homeless shelters or navigation centers or things of that nature that are, that are important in this regard. So next up is education and workforce. Obviously, a quality education is vital in terms of the roots out of poverty. And California uh, is basically not succeeding in fully educating its children for the uh, jobs of tomorrow, for careers, for getting out of poverty, and in particularly poor and marginalized communities, communities of color, have not been well served by the state's education system. Uh, here you can see uh, career readiness and college rates for a variety uh, of at-risk groups, low-income, homeless youth, uh, those whose English is not the first language, uh, and you can see it is not performing uh, particularly Oops, particularly well. Uh, in terms of education reform, we think number one, the state needs to deal with its current bias against charter schools. 
that, that basically, I mean, the fact that you even debated recently the idea of, of capping the number of charters in the, in the state. We know, for example, that charters outperform uh, in California uh, traditional public schools, particularly when you take into account, you're looking at low and at risk, low income and at risk students. Uh, yet the formula, the funding formula for at risk students actually penalizes, you only get, uh, I believe it's 80%, uh, someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe it's 80% uh, of the funding for, as traditional schools do for dealing with at risk students. We think that sort of thing should be, uh, be eliminated and charters should be treated as full members of the community of, edu uh, of schools. Um, beyond that, however, we think that you definitely, you should, parents in general should have more control that too, too much California efforts put into the systems and not enough into parents and children. And was, therefore, we think that parents should have more control, more choice, and there should be more competition within the school system generally. So we do call for the establishment of a tuition tax credit program. This is a program in which individuals can contribute, uh, receive a tax credit for contributions to this fund. That fund can go to low-income parents for any educational services at all, whether it's buying computers or hiring a tutor or sending their children to a private school. They can use this fund for whatever mechanism they, they, they want on that. Uh, within the public school system itself, we think we need to restructure the pension obligation systems. Too much money is not going into the classroom, but it's actually simply going to, look to, the, to the pension system. And I understand you have a problem, you have, that's the, you have a state Supreme Court decision that makes it virtually impossible for you to uh, change the pensions for teachers who are there, but for new teachers coming into the system, we think there needs to be moved to a more defined contribution type of system rather than a defined benefit system. And finally, we think there needs to be greater emphasis placed on voc ed and on technical education uh, <coughs> within the system. Uh, one change we mentioned in the report in particular is that most, voc ed, uh, most uh, apprenticeship programs, for example, are limited to children who have graduated high school or who are 18. Uh, many uh, in a high school already know that they're going into a trade, they're not necessarily going on to college. We think apprenticeship programs should be opened up to them at, a, at an earlier age. Uh, that sort of thing. I want to touch on the criminal justice system. California, uh, it, it's sort of unpopular right now to talk about criminal justice reform. Uh, you're seeing all sorts of complaints that uh, crime rates are rising. Uh, actually, California's crime rates uh, are, have been declining. Both property crimes and violent crimes have declined uh, quite a bit over the years. There has been an uptake for, in 2021 compared to 2020. Uh, for violent crimes in particular, uh, shootings and, and murders are up uh, in those regards. Uh, most of the experts that I know talk about that, that that is largely related to coming out of COVID, the, the COVID uh, restrictions. Uh, and it's very hard to trace this to any individual reform. You can drop the various criminal justice reforms that we've seen in California over the years uh, into this chart and you don't see any you know, an increase in crime rates after the adoption of criminal justice reform, so we think that those things need to be maintained. So we would resist any efforts to roll back uh, the criminal justice reforms that have been made. Uh, we think in general we need to do more about over-criminalization. Uh, we should decriminalize victimless crimes. This includes uh, uh, sex work. This includes most drug offenses. This includes uh, loitering laws. I understand there's the law passed uh, to get rid of the statewide loitering laws. 
uh, but it hasn't been, uh, it's being held up for the, for the moment for strategic reasons. Uh, we think that the criminalization that's going into in terms of tobacco now is just going to be another example leading to the over-policing of poor and minority communities. And in general, we think the entire criminal code should be looked at in terms of removing those things that don't belong as police enforcement mechanisms. The police should not be required to handle every social ill in society. They're not necessarily equipped for that. They're equipped to deal with crimes, not to, not to be sort of glorified social workers with a gun. Uh, we think that in general, fines and fees as punishment uh, penalize uh, low-income people who are less able to handle, to handle those things. Now, the, under the state law right now, the judges are supposed to take that into account. They, they, they don't anywhere near uh, what is required, uh, taking into account ability to pay. And what ends up is that people end up in jail awaiting trial or uh, are fined uh, often for like a traffic offense and are not able to make that payment. And then uh, it just kind of builds up over time continually uh, to the point where they point where they end up getting arrested for that and then a criminal record follows them and all of that. Speaking of criminal records, 20% of Californians actually have a criminal record. Uh, and this is often can block you from getting a job. It can block you from getting housing. It can block you from getting into a school or getting a scholarship. Uh, Pell Grants and all these things can be dependent upon your criminal record. Uh, we think there should be, a, I know you have banned the box, but that has not proven effective in terms of limiting the, uh, the, the blockage here. Um, we think there should be a mechanism essentially in place that says that if, if you keep yourself clean, if you don't recommit a crime, there's an automatic expungement of your record. It just simply goes away after a period of time. And that can be on a sliding scale depending on what the crime was. Uh, people who are arrested for drug crimes or things of that nature actually should be expunged already, but that should be expunged fairly quickly. If you're a simple assault or a property crime, maybe that's in five years or something like that. If it's a more violent, violent crime, it could be 10, 15, 20 years, and obviously some things like murder and rape and things like that, should, you know, those should stay for a long period of time or, or permanently. But some sort of mechanism that basically wipes out your criminal record fairly quickly. And then finally, as part of this, we need to update rehabilitation programs uh, while people are in the prison system to better prepare them for when they get out of prison. Uh, too often, you're simply dumped on the street uh, without a uh, satisfactory mechanism for preparing people. Somebody's been in jail for 10, 15, 20 years, and they're just suddenly put on the street and said, OK, uh, now you're on your own. Uh, the chances of recidivism becomes uh, pretty high uh, if they're not better prepared for that. Within the state's welfare system, you have an extensive welfare system, and it does tend to meet people's needs. Uh, or the, the, we can argue about whether or not it should be higher or lower, or what the work requirements of things should be. But a couple of things that we noted in particular, one is that the incentives seem to be wrong. Uh, the asset testing, you did raise it to $10,000 worth of assets a while back for CalWORKs and other programs. Uh, but we. We find basically the incentive is to spend rather than to save, and you don't spend your way out of poverty. Uh, if somebody gets a welfare check and they go out and they buy the latest running shoes, athletic shoes with it, that's, you know, we're kind of cool with that. If they put that money in a 529 account so their kids can go to school someday, we'll take away their check. 
uh, that seems to be the wrong set of incentives uh, within the program. We think that basically there shouldn't be any asset testing. Income testing is a different thing, but asset tests, uh, should, we should, should get rid of them for the programs. Uh, welfare diversion programs, the state has a diversion program. Basically, the diversion program says people often come into the welfare system with an immediate problem. I can't pay my rent. My car broke down and I can't go to work. I have a, a family emergency and I need a couple of thousand dollars. And all the welfare system can do is sort of bring you into the system, sign you up for the program and say, well, you know, we'll start sending you a check. And we know that once you get in the program, it's hard to get out. In a diversion program, you get a lump sum payment up front in exchange for giving up eligibility for the program for a period of time. So you might get $2,000 and then not be able to be eligible for CalWORKs for the next uh, six months or whatever. Uh, these programs uh, are available now, but very few, there's a chart in the uh, report you'll see, very few counties actually utilize this. Uh, we think it should be much stronger to utilize. Part of that is the incentive system where you get, much, you get bonuses and the state gets a bonus if people sign up for welfare and then leave the program, they get no bonus if they actually don't get in the program at all. So again, the incentives are sort of are backwards on these programs. We think there should be greater incentives for counties to participate in diversion programs. And then finally, we think you should prioritize cash payments over in-kind benefits and indirect payments. Most of what is provided to people on welfare is not cash. Uh, we actually don't pay poor people, we pay people to take care of poor people. So we pay landlords, we pay doctors, we pay grocery stores, but we don't give money to poor people. Uh, we sort of treat them like they're three years old and they can't make decisions for themselves. We, we're gonna make all those decisions for you. We think it's time to treat poor people like adults, like, they treat, like everyone else is treated. You get a paycheck, you're not told how much of that money has to go to your rent and how much money has to go to food and so on. You make those decisions for yourself, so should poor people. We should be prioritizing cash payments over that. That involves, uh, there's a lot of ways to do that, but one of the things we do look at in the report is you have the Cali to EITC, which is a fairly successful program. Uh, we think you should roll other, these other programs into it. Basically, instead of doing uh, rent subsidies or uh, food subsidies or whatever it is, simply roll those into the EITC, Pro Cali EITC, as much as possible uh, in doing that. And then lastly, what we're calling economic inclusion. Just want to note the fact that despite growth in California's economy, the number of people who are eligible for SNAP, and we're using that as sort of a, a proxy for people living in poverty, uh, has continued to, uh, continued to grow by and large. I mean, we know uh, that economic growth does more to get people out of poverty than anything else in history. Uh, people have seen the famous hockey stick, uh, if you will, uh, in which we see people, you know, throughout most of human history, mankind was desperately, miserably poor. And, you know, they were ruled over by a smaller group that was slightly less miserably, desperately poor. And then about 300 years ago, with the onboard of the free market capitalism, we saw this spike in world wealth and since then, the number of people living in poverty has declined dramatically. But that economic growth can only help if everybody is able to participate in that economic growth. If you have essentially a two-tier system in which one group of people gets to participate in economic growth and wealth creation, uh, and another group does not, all you're gonna do is increase artificially inequality and you're not gonna help lift people out of poverty. 
so we think, number one, there's, we should be removing those barriers to people participating in the economy. That includes uh, unnecessary occupational licensing laws that do not have to do with health and safety, uh, but essentially are designed to protect monopolies by the people, the people who are existing. California has the third most onerous occupational licensing regime in the nation in terms of the number of professions that it applies to, uh, in terms of the uh, rigidity of the requirements, the number of tests you have to take, the cost, the time it takes to get in. Often these make very little sense. The famous thing is that it takes uh, more time to become a beautician than it does to become a tattoo artist uh, in California, uh, costs more. Uh, these type of things don't make a lot of things, sense. Part of that is we also want to rethink occupational zoning laws. Uh, people, you know, we saw people work, one group of people saw white collar workers being able to work from home during the pandemic, but it's also very difficult to be like a caterer out of your home because of the occupational zoning restrictions, or you can't bake cookies and sell them and things like that that people might be able to do uh, from their home, especially entry level jobs. Childcare, we know childcare is a huge problem. Uh, huge portions of California, there's a chart I believe in your, in your report that shows childcare deserts, how hard it is for most low income communities to find adequate childcare. The answer has been right now, and you, you see it in Washington right now, is we're gonna have subsidies for childcare. Basically that's just kind of chasing your tail. What happens is childcare providers simply raise the cost of childcare, they get the larger and larger subsidies. It's great for big daycare, but not very good for low income communities that often don't uh, rely on or don't want that sort of big institutional daycare, but look to sort of the mom and pop operations or the church operation down the street. We think you need to deregulate the childcare operation. Again, not, not child uh, safety and health issues. You certainly wanna make sure that pedophiles aren't teachers and things of that nature. But the fact is that in California, you have to have 75 square feet of space per child outdoors. You have to have 150 square feet per child of indoor space, things like that. Why is 140 not acceptable? Uh, you know, the teaching requirements, the education requirements that you have to have to be a daycare instructor are significant and can cost as much as $2,000 uh, added to the cost of childcare uh, in the state uh, for simply uh, one, one additional addition to the child to teacher ratio, things of that nature. Uh, and then finally, there's a whole list in your report of uh, barriers to entrepreneurship that we think need to be done away. That's everything from caps on liquor licenses, uh, dealing with the cannabis industry, um, which locks out uh, low income and minorities from that. Uh, there's, a, there's a host of these sort of little regulations, uh, the franchise fees, business creation fees, uh, all these sort of things that sort of block people from being able to start a business. And uh, particularly wanna make it as easy and smooth as possible for low income people to be able to start businesses and to create jobs. Uh, I'm gonna leave it with this, and then I, I wanna leave a little bit of time for question and answer here. This, this people will recognize as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And we find that California's efforts fighting poverty have largely been focused on this bottom level, the physiological needs or the basic needs people have, food, clothing, shelter. And that is certainly necessary to deal with people who are living in poverty today. You certainly want to provide those things for people. But while it's necessary, it's not sufficient. If what we really want to get people out of poverty, it means we need to move up that period all the way to the top. We want people to flourish, not just survive. We don't want to make poverty less miserable. We want to end poverty. 
What we want to do is to make it possible for every Californian to rise as far as their individual talents can take them, to become masters of their own destiny, captains of their own fate. And to do that, we think you need to go beyond simply pouring more money into the, the bottom rung of this pyramid or simply creating another program that deals with the bottom rung of this program. We think you need to go far beyond that, and that is what we have attempted to do uh, with the recommendations that we've made here today. With that, I thank you all very much, and I'm going to turn to some question and answer things. Once again, if you're doing this from home, uh, we think that you can, uh, you can do it on the platforms there. Uh, if you're doing it on Twitter, please use the hashtag Cato California so we know it's a, it's a question for us. And with that, I'll be happy to open it up to any questions here in the, in the room or, uh, or from home. Yeah. Did you also, excuse me, <laughs> did, did you also look at overall pensions of service and of government employees in the state of California? Well, we did not. We did not go into, into CalPERS generally. We know that the pension system is obviously very generous, and we've also been concerned about CalPERS uh, politicizing uh, the, the pension system in terms of, in, of where investments are made rather than sort of driving for the highest return. Uh, but the teachers in particular we wanted to look at because we think that one of the, you know, people talk about education being underfunded. One of the things we found is that a lot of the money that's being used to fund education is not necessarily making it into teacher pay in the way we think. It's, so much of it is being siphoned off in terms of, uh, of the pension problem. Uh, we'd like to see more of that go into the classroom. And that, that's why we focused on, on uh, education in particular. Yeah, Kelly, you've got something from online. Yes, we have a question from online. This is from uh, Steve Bellman, speaking of pension plans. I like your recommendation to move newer teachers from a pension plan to a defined contribution retirement plan. How, though, can we pay higher salaries to teachers slash school administrators so they can live near their school districts and financially support their own families? Yeah, I think, I think a couple of things in that. Uh, first of all, I do think there's states that have been moving to a defined uh, contribution system, Michigan among others, and, and some things like that. There are ways to gradually phase that in without touching the benefits for existing teachers so you can get around that Supreme Court question, a decision. Uh, in terms of making it easier for teachers to live near their home, that's where you have to bring down the cost of housing. Uh, I mean, it, it, is, it is absolutely ridiculous that a teacher on a teacher's salary can't live in the city in which they teach because they can't afford housing, and they can't afford housing because we won't let you build housing in that city. Uh, you know, I think that housing reform uh, is, is simply, it's not simply, it's not 100%, but the basics of it is the supply and demand question. This is sort of economics 101. If you have a lot of demand and you limit the supply, the price goes up. And essentially that's what's happening with housing. We basically are limiting housing availability uh, people want to live in California, people want to live in the cities in California, uh, and then we find that it's, geez, big surprise, housing is, housing is expensive. Yeah, another one from online. This is from John T. Which recommendation that you'd like to see implemented is the most important? If you could choose one reform, which would you prior prioritize? Yeah, I, again, I think I'm going to go back to housing as, as the number one, because so much of the other problems that we face deals with where you live, deals with your zip code. 
Uh, education is too often a question of what zip code you live in. Uh, one of the groups we met with uh, was folks over at the Bay, Bay Tech Charter School in Oakland. And they talked about the fact that the students in some of the zip codes were the, around their school, 0% were prepared for school when they enrolled in the, at, at Bay Tech. Zero. Not, not, none of them could read or do math at the grade level they were supposed to do. And yet, just a few zip codes over were wealthy neighborhoods where the parents had teachers and where there were better schools. And they were, you know, they were able, they were coming in at a vastly different level. So where, you're, where you are educated or where you live makes a big difference. Second, so many of these residential living patterns are not the result of chance. They're the result of very discriminatory zoning practices in the past, redlining, uh, basically racial segregation that went on in California over the years. And uh, even though the sort of explicit racial segregation is now eliminated, uh, too often zoning laws are simply a proxy for keeping low-income people out of your community or people of color out of your community, and that certainly needs to be, to be dealt with one way or another. Anything else? Yeah, one more, Kelly. Uh, this is from Anonymous. Um, <laughs> How do your recommendations account for the potential of charter schools to only mostly accommodate Californians who are already advantaged? Yeah, well, it doesn't happen. Uh, charter schools in California actually have a higher rate of enrollment for uh, low-income, minority, and at-risk students than do their traditional public schools in the, in the same, uh, same area. So actually, charter schools are actually more likely to handle uh, problem students or, or students at risk uh, than in the public schools. Uh, and in fact, uh, look, if you've got money in California, you, you can get out from under the, you know, even a poorly, first of all, your public school is likely to be a better public school than a low-income community public school. And second, you can get out from under it. You can go to a private school. You can, you can do things, uh, you, can, you can move uh, in ways that low-income communities can't. And I, and I think that's, that's a, a problem. Yeah. to provide for more housing to be built in California. Is yeah. there still a place for single family dwellings? Sure, uh, I mean, I, I think that there's, I have no problem with single family homes. The question is mandating only single family homes. Uh, before SB 9 and 10, uh, roughly depending on how you measured it and what you called residentially available land, between 60 and 70% of all the residential land in California was single family only zoning. You couldn't put up a duplex in there. You certainly couldn't build an apartment building there. Still can't build an apartment building in most of those areas. Those limitations, uh, I think, uh, those are sort of artificial restrictions on what you can build are a problem. But I think, you know, if you want to build a single family home, and we're not, nobody's saying we should ban single family housing. We're simply saying that if you don't want to build single family housing, you shouldn't have to. All right, I mean, let me just close with this. As I say, I think that many of the recommendations we made today are gonna to be controversial. Uh, I, I don't think there's gonna, you know, I, I don't think it's gonna be an immediate groundswell in the legislature to enact all 24. But one of the things I have absolutely found 
uh, in my trips out here and in talking to folks, and I say we've met with over 150 uh, officials and activists and people working on the front lines, was a receptiveness to the idea of change and a recognition that something different had to be done and a willingness to discuss these ideas. I appreciate very much your being out here today. I know we've got uh, a lot of people watching uh, this online, probably more people watching this online now since it's pouring out, and, uh, and we appreciate that, that. I urge you to think about the ideas we're talking about, to discuss them, to debate them, and to do so civilly across political lines, across ideological lines, and be willing to talk a little bit about what needs to be done, because clearly there needs to be some changes uh, to what you're doing now. Thank you all very much, really appreciate it.